The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. If you have your Bible, now is the perfect time to take it out. Um, If you are new with us, we have been working through the book of Philippians. Uh, Basically, we are we are going through the, the whole book. We're going to take a break for Christmas, but mostly we're going sort of passage by passage. Uh, this week, we find ourselves in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Uh, if you're using a Bible uh, from the tables on your way in, which are always there if you forget yours, we're on page 841. Um, last week, we had, a, I think, a great time. I had a great time uh, beholding the wonders of the cross. If you're here with us, the passage previous to this is really all about just the magnificence of Christ, that he, that he left the heights of heaven, that he humbled himself to become a human, he lived the perfect life, and then humbled himself even further by dying on the cross for our sins. And what we saw last week is uh, God the Father's response to that was one of great exaltation for Jesus. This is the verse that uh, was really the, the key for last week. It says, therefore, because of all of what Christ has done, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That was the response of God the Father. Uh, In our passage today, Paul, who's writing this, shifts to the focus um, on our response. What is our response to the cross? And we'll notice in our text that the same word, therefore, introduces the way that we are to respond. And we're to respond in a number of ways. Uh, Because Jesus has been obedient, therefore, we're going to see that we are called to obedience as well. Because Jesus brought light into the world, therefore we are called to be lights in the world as well. Because Jesus worked on the cross for our salvation, therefore we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a a well-known verse. It's really talking about the Christian life, but it's uh, often a bit confusing to know what exactly does, does it mean when it says that we are to work out our salvation. How does that relate to the work that Jesus did? What's the the nature of this work we're called to do? Uh, What are the practical things that we are supposed to do as a Christian? So it's to those questions that we are going to devote our time this morning. Uh, We're going to look at it in three parts. Uh, The first, we're going to look at the meaning of the command. So this this command of God to work out our salvation, what does that mean? Next, we're going to look at the purpose of it. And then thirdly, uh, the effect that it has on our life. So this morning, instead of reading the passage all at once at the beginning, we're going to work through it in sections, three sections. And uh, before we do that, I'm, I'm going to pray. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time, and thank you for this text. I pray, Lord, that um, as you speak to us, we would hear you clearly. I pray, Lord, you would uh, help me to uh, preach words of truth, and uh, Lord, in spite of my own sin, to be helpful. I pray also for us, Lord, as a people, just that we would... Um, have soft hearts, Lord, to really hear what you're saying and to look for those areas in our life, uh, those areas where um, you, you want to shape us and change us uh, for our good and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing, the, the meaning of the command. We are told to, to work it out. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Well, let's look at the first two verses. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pause there. So this is, just to refresh our memory, Paul. He is a church planter, pastor writing to the church, the Philippian church. And he is, that's why he calls him my beloved, because he has great affection for them. And if you notice, he's telling them to do something that's not new. He's basically telling them, keep doing what you were doing when we were together. Now that I'm absent, I still want you to keep doing what you were doing, which is to be obedient. He's saying, I I want you to obey God. I want you to do things God's way. This is the, the essence of what it means to work out our salvation. The work of the Christian life is to be obedient to God. Now, for some people, this, um, for some people, they enjoy the rest that comes from the grace of God. And so the Christian life for them is one without any work because, because Jesus did all the work for me. And so I get to simply enjoy my relationship with Jesus. I can bask in the radiance of his glory. I can wake up each day and know that there's no work for me to do. And in a sense, that's true. Except, except that here it tells us there's some work to do. So we have to understand, what, is it, what does it mean that there's work for us to do? It's, it's not the case that the Christian life is one of uh, just aimless fellowship with God where we just go through the day and there's no, uh, no desire for God in our life, no direction from him in our life, there, there is in fact work to do. But on the flip side, the kind of work that we're called to do is not saving work, right? It's not, it's not work that earns us anything before God. That has been done by Jesus on the cross. This idea of working out our salvation, it's not, um, it's not as if, like the picture you should have in your mind is not one of a teacher, giving like a set of word problems, right? And saying, okay, now go work it out. Once you're done, bring it back to me and I will mark it. If it's not good, you're going to fail. If it's great, well, then you pass. It's, it's not that. The work that we are told to do, notice, is work that we do and yet God is doing it in us. That's the last, the second part of that verse. Work out your own salvation for it is God who works in you. So I'm doing some work, yes. But God is doing work in me, yes. Together. There's, there's a dynamic there which is uh, amazing because we see in it the power of God and yet the call for us to do some good things. Really what we have here is a description of the life uh, of, of Christ, the life of a Christian in between the beginning and the end. So the beginning, we, we already saw this in Philippians. Philippians 1.29 said this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So the beginning of our faith, the belief is given to us. It's granted to us by God. And the end is also there by God. Look at Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began, God, a work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we've already saw, we saw the beginning, we saw the end. Philippians 2.13 is the middle part. It's the exciting part. It's the meat of the sandwich, if you like meat. Okay. Um, so we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you for your good, for his pleasure. This is the process of sanctification. The amazing thing is that at any age, whenever someone becomes a Christian, they are children in the faith. Even if you're 40 years old, 50 years old, whatever age, you are new in Christ, which means that you have to grow. Just like when we're born physically, we we have to grow and develop and mature. It's the same thing for every Christian. So whether you're young when you come to Christ or later on, there is a process of growth and the Bible calls it sanctification. And so 
This, this idea that we are to work out our salvation, it's really talking about this type of growth. Now, the dynamic of our work and God's role, our role, God's role in it, is sometimes difficult to figure out. So I'm going to give uh, for you a, a word picture, an illustration that I think will be helpful. And the, the illustration is one of a, a home renovation. Many of you have probably lived through home renovations. You kind of know what this looks like. It's messy, it's dirty. But what I want to uh, describe for you is, is a home renovation that is um, of a different sort. So picture, if you please, your life is a home. Okay? Your life is a home. Before you become a Christian, your life is one of disrepair. Your home is in disrepair. Um, the walls are buckling. The paint is peeling. The tiles are chipped. There's stains on the carpet. The plumbing doesn't work. The, the wiring is, is dangerous, to say the least. In some rooms, the, the roof is caved in. It is a home that should rightly be condemned, except you've been living in it. And part of the reason you've been living in it is because your home is cloaked in darkness. As you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes as wide as you can, you, just, you can barely make out the outlines of the furniture. As you walk through your home, you stumble around, you can't really see how bad things actually are. And in fact, when you go outside of your home, you really do see a cloak of darkness over the whole thing. And what's more, everywhere else on your street, there's the same darkness. And so you don't have a real sense of, of the, the dire need you're in, of the brokenness around you, until, until some visitors come. And these visitors are like people you haven't met before because they, they shine with a light that you've never seen. See, in your home, even when you light candles, it, it's, it's kind of dim. There's something about just the air, the darkness that you can't really see. But when they walk into your home, there's a light that shines with brilliance. And they sit in your living room and you look up and you look around and you begin to see all the, all the, the wreckage of your, of your home. You begin to see all the paint that's discolored. You see the stains on the carpet, the bird's nest, the bugs. You see it all. And there begins to well up in you a desire to make things new. And so you ask them, can I have some of your light? And they gladly leave it with you. And now, in the center of your home, you have this, this light that's bright and glowing. And you can see all of the things that need to be done. And so you embark on a grand restoration process. It's one that takes not weeks, but, but months and years. There's dust, there's noise. Your body aches from all the work. And what you do is you take that light and you go into every room of your home. And as you walk in, you see that some rooms, there isn't much work to be done. You realize, I just need to take out this carpet. I need to paint. I need to put in new carpet, a new bulb. All of a sudden, that room is glowing brightly. But there are other rooms that you walk into and, and it's in shambles. I mean, it takes months and months of work. You have to rebuild the whole floor. You have to secure the roof, rewire everything. But in time, because of the help of the light that you can see what needs to be done, it's restored. It's new. There are other rooms, though, that you can't even bear to go in. I mean, you, you peek inside, but there is such a pile of, of clutter and regret and bitterness that, that you just close the door. You can't even, can't even bear to look at it. You figure, I'll deal with that later. And in time, you do. In time, as the light begins to work its way into the, the whole of your home, even those rooms that are filled with darkness, even those rooms that are difficult to open, you, you find a way in there. And you bring light to every area of your life, so much so that one day as you step back from the curb and you look at your home, you're astounded it's glowing brightly. I mean, it's not perfect. There's still, you can see some windows where there's darkness there and there's some things that need to be repaired, but it's, it's remarkable, the change. 
And in fact, your neighbors have started to notice. And they've come over and they've asked you about this, this light that you have because they want to do the same in their own home. Now look, any sort of uh, Christian analogy always breaks down. And so this one, if you push it too far, will we'll break down also. Uh, but what I hoped to illustrate was the dynamic between our role in the restoration of our lives and the ultimate source of the transformation we need. Because if you ask the question, what is it that initiated the transformation in that story? The, the answer is obviously the light. Without the light, you would have no idea what needs to be done in that home. Without the, the ability to take that light and to go and see the, the wreckage and the brokenness, you would have no ability or even probably desire to fix it because you couldn't see. But who did the work? Well, it was you. It was you with the presence of the light, the encouraging helpful presence of the light so that you could see into those areas of darkness in your home. And it's the very same in the Christian life. The Bible says that when we become a Christian, when someone becomes a Christian, there is new life that is given within. And there is a new light in their life. And for those who become Christians, there are certain areas of life that are easy to bring in line with what God says is true. If you're a social person and you become a Christian and you hear something about community groups or how we're to be part of the community of God, you think this is great. I love this. You're inviting people over to your home. You're being vulnerable. You're sharing. You're praying for each other. You're being hospitable. You're saying that this Christian thing is fantastic. Why did I do this earlier? But then there's other areas of your life where it's so much harder. And it may be because there are areas where it's, it's just painful to open those doors. If you can imagine uh, growing up in a home where there is a lot of anger, a lot of tension all the time, and you've learned that that's, that's how you deal with conflict. You make yourself heard, you impose yourself on others, and so even into adulthood, you're responding in that way. If you become a Christian, you may not see right away what exactly God is saying to you about that area of your life. And in fact, you may not even want to know. But what if you're faithfully reading the word and you come across this passage in Ephesians, and you read this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What would your response be? He'd be like, I can't do that. How are people going to know I'm upset if I'm not yelling? How would, how would people know how much this means to me if I'm not screaming when I get frustrated? I can't forgive. If I forgive, I lose the upper hand. I can't just forgive people even though they haven't said sorry. That's, so what do you do? You close the door of that room. You think, listen, Lord, Jesus, I, I, I love you, I'm going to follow you, but there are certain areas of my life where, I mean, I, I know what's best there. I've got that taken care of. I'm used to dealing with that. I'll deal with it my way. But you see, God loves you. And so with patience, with persistence, with, with the words of others, with the word of God, he is going to prompt you to open those doors. He is going to compel you to bring the light of Christ even into those areas of our life which are filled with darkness. That's what it means to work out our salvation. Notice, it's something that we already have. We have the light of Christ by the power and grace of God, but it needs to fully, we need to experience it in every area of our life. And that looks like obedience. It looks like hearing from God and then shaping our lives to be in accordance with what he says is best because he loves us, because he wants what's best for us, even though it is going to be difficult. It is going to take effort. It, there is a genuine sense in which it is work, but it is work empowered by God. 
And that's key. Sometimes we have the idea that this is like a tag team, right? If you watch WWF, I never, well, when I was a kid, I watched WWF. But anyway, they have tag team matches, not anymore. And, um, and what they do is they, they would tag in, right? So sometimes you have this picture. There's certain things that I'm going to deal with, and then I tag in Jesus. You, that's a big one. You go deal with that, and he goes in, and then it's my turn, right? Because we both have something to bring to the table. But the answer, the truth is, you don't have anything to bring to the table, <laughs> right? You were in darkness before, right? To think that you would, you would bring something meaningful, that would be like your neighbor who looks at your house and sees all the light and brilliance, and he says, okay, I want to do that. And so without any light, goes into his dark home with a power tool and starts to try to make things better. You would say, that's foolishness. You, you can't see anything yet. You, you need God's help. You need the empowering work of the Spirit of God, the clarity of mind to see what needs to be done, to repent of sin, to even identify sin. All of that is by the grace and power of God. So what does it mean for us to, to work? It means for us to allow God to work in us and then to be obedient to what he's calling us to do. So, what's the purpose of this? If that's what it means to work out our salvation, it means we allow God to continue his work in us and to be faithful and to bring the light into all areas of our life. What does it mean? What is the purpose of this? Well, the purpose is that we genuinely shine as lights for God. We see this in the next uh, couple of verses. Uh, Paul gets more practical. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that's, that's the goal, that our lives would be ones that shine against the backdrop of a, of a crooked world. And we see there that there are two uh, patterns of life that are highlighted. If we do these things, if we pursue these things, then we will shine. So we're going to look at both of them. The first is that we are not to grumble or dispute. I uh, see that in the first verse, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think, I think this is a tough one. I think if we're honest, grumbling, I mean, there may be no more universally applicable verse than this. We are a people that grumble. We are a people that live in one of the best places of the world in the best times in history, and yet and we grumble. I mean, just think. Think of how long it's been since you had a thought or even you said something about how you wish something was different in your life. I mean, it was, it was probably minutes. You're probably doing it while I talked, <laughs> right? That, that just is the nature that, that is in us. And notice, it's, we often think that there's a connection between the difficult circumstances of our life and grumbling. But that's actually not the causal connection. We know this because there are people who are far worse off than us, and yet they grumble a lot less. It's possible. And there are people that are way better off than us, and yet they grumble a lot more. See, it's not, it's not the circumstances of life uh, that, that spring up into grumbling. It's, it's a dissatisfied heart. It's our attitude towards the circumstances of our life. And that's why I think the word is included here, uh, dispute. Don't, don't grumble or dispute. Because to dispute something means that we take issue with like an official decree or like someone in authority, like a ticket, right? You've been speeding. Here's your ticket. Mm, but I've got some reasons why I had to speed. So I'm going to dispute the ticket. I'm going to go to court. Hopefully, hopefully the cop doesn't show up and I'm going to dispute it. Why? Because, because I don't want to accept that. I want to take issue with it. Now, we have to be careful 
The word here, dispute, can sometimes, it has the idea of a dialogue, of a bit of conversation. And, and that, we would agree, is a good thing. It's, it's good to have genuine conversation, especially with those in authority. I think we would, we would all agree that one of the main problems in the world is that there are governments, there are people in authority who are not engaging in genuine dialogue with the people they're leading. There's, there's bad public policy because those who are making the policy haven't engaged in genuine dialogue. Dialogue, conversation, those are good things. But there's a big difference between genuine conversation that's designed to get at the truth and, and complaining because you don't get things your way or because you're uncomfortable. There's also a big difference between a dispute aimed at uh, achieving a greater truth and a dispute with God who embodies truth. That, that's a different thing. There's a foolishness that comes from grumbling to God, to the one who, who is truth and his love and his mercy, and we see, like, this is nothing new. If you know your Bible, you know there are some great examples of people grumbling throughout biblical history. That one of the best, best is the wrong word, one of the worst are the Israelites, right? God's people. I mean, just imagine, they were in slavery, I don't think many of us could say in our story that we were set free from slavery. They were in slavery. They were oppressed. They, they, were, they were whipped. They were beaten. And yet God appeared to them. He manifested himself in a pillar of, of fire and, and cloud. And he afflicted the Egyptians and he saved them. They came through the Red Sea and, and God said, hey, there's a land of promise. I'm calling it the promised land because there, I promise, it's going to be great. You're going to have fertile land. It's gonna, just trust me. Walk in my way. And it's going to be fantastic. And what happens? Like three days in, they start grumbling. Where's the water? Where's, where's the food? Look at this. This is, I think, two months into their journey. And here's what it says. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's my accent. That's my Israelite accent. Thank you. It's like Masterpiece Theater where everyone's in British accents. Okay. That's the only one I can do. So what do we see here? We see, look, God loved them. God, God saved them. And look at the attitude of their heart. The, the things that God had done already for them seemed so small. And the things that he wasn't doing seemed so big. So why would this happen? Well, clearly they were, they were doubting the character of God. They were doubting whether God really knew what was best for them, whether he was really leading them in the right direction. They had a lot of other great ideas about how their life could be better. And if, and if that would only happen, then they could be happy, but it's not. So how can I, how can I be happy? Does that, does that kind of grumbling ring a bell? Can you think of a time when God had given you clear direction? maybe from the Bible, maybe from good counsel from someone. There's something that you know you should do. There's a way that you know he is calling you, but you quickly find yourself evaluating it. You quickly, you quickly start deciding whether it's really true for you, this word that you've heard, and whether the timing, does he mean right now? And there might be some other you know, extenuating circumstances as to why I don't really need to respond with obedience. God says to forgive but you might be thinking, this situation, this is different. He doesn't mean here. God says to trust him. But, but things aren't getting better. 
And, and so I need to do something. I can't be patient. I need, I need to f- make something happen. It's not happening. See, when we live life this way, our light is very, very dim. When we live a life that is doubting, that is second-guessing, that is looking for ways around being obedient to the Lord, the light in our life, in terms of the glory for God, in terms of opportunities to influence others, it's very, very dim. Because ultimately, we're trusting in ourselves. But on the flip side, I wonder, can you, do you know someone who, man, they just always seem grateful to God? Can you think of someone who just genuinely seems to, to praise God for all things? As I was thinking about it, there was a couple that came to mind. Uh, their names are Davy and Rosemary Jinn. I met them at Willingdon Church back in the day. Davy was uh, one of my first youth leaders, and they were missionaries in Nepal. And um, I got to go visit them in Nepal to do some, uh, some ministry there for the kids. And, I mean, you can imagine, in Nepal, everything is difficult. There's nothing easy in Nepal. Just to get from one end of Nepal to the other, from Kathmandu to Dundaldura, where they had their field hospital, I mean, it was harder to go those few hundred kilometers than to go from Vancouver to Singapore. We had buses that would break down. We had axles that they just broke. Trucks that wouldn't work. At one point, we had to load everything onto uh, like a horse and buggy and take it that way. When we went to their home, they didn't have electricity. They had to rig up solar panels and they had electricity a little bit during the day. All of the comforts that we enjoy, they were not a part of their life. And yet, I don't think I ever saw them without a smile on their face. It was disconcerting. I'm like, why are you guys so happy all the time? They, they, the things that God was doing in their life, the things that he had done loomed large in their life. And the troubles of their life, they just seemed so small that it was natural for them to just praise God, to be grateful for all the things that were going on. Now, here's the thing, two things. The life that they lived, I mean, you could see it, it shone brightly for Jesus. It was on their lips. It was in the way that they, they approached everything. Even when the difficulties came, their smile said, this, they've got something that I want. The second thing is, that didn't happen by accident. Like if you were to ask them, you know, how is it that you came to a place where even when difficult things happen, you seem to still have joy? Well, we worked at it. We, we worked out our salvation. We, we found ways to trust God, even in those mornings, and, and they shared. There are very difficult times there. And yet they worked out their salvation. They came to a point of obedience increasingly by the grace of God, by the power of God. And in that, there was great light. That, that's the kind of thing we're called to, to, to. To bring the light into those areas of darkness and grumbling and difficulty and remind ourselves what we have to be joyful about. Okay, that was the first pattern of life. Secondly, we are called to be blameless and pure. Uh, the idea here, you'll see the words uh, blameless, innocent. The idea here is that we live a life of moral integrity before God and before the world. Uh, the great thing about all of these uh, exhortations is that God, if we are a Christian, he's, he's telling us to do something that we already are. So if you notice in the text, it said that we are children of God, a child of God. If we are already a child of God, that means that we have been made pure. We've been adopted into the family of God through the cross. Our sins have been taken care of. So we are already blameless and innocent and pure. And now the word is, go, okay, go and live that way. Go and live that way in the midst of a crooked and twisted world. And we know that's what the world is like. 
we know that morality and ethics are, are malleable. They're bendable. I was listening to an interview this week uh, with a man named Ed Rollins. Ed Rollins is a political strategist for the Republican Party in the United States of America. He's run uh, apparently a number of big campaigns. The biggest one uh, was uh, Reagan Bush in 1984, which I was told uh, was a landslide victory. So this is a man who's been around for a long time. And the interviewer was asking him, you know, what do you do if, if you're starting a new campaign or there's a new person who wants you to run their campaign, what do you do? And he said, the first thing I always do before I even say yes is I sit down with him and I say, okay, treat me like I'm your priest. Tell me everything bad you've ever done. Every small thing, every big thing, I need to know everything. Because of course, if they go into a campaign, the opponents are going to find out things, are going to try to dig up dirt. And he said, interestingly, he said uh, two things. One, there's, there's always dirt. And secondly, they always lie about it. They try to cover it up. And they think it won't hurt them, and then it does. It comes out in the end, and, and it's, it's difficulty. And my thought is, that shouldn't be true of us as Christians. That's what the verse is saying. That type of life should not be true of us. It's not that we're not sinners, or that we haven't done bad things, but in the light of the cross, the calling in our lives is to acknowledge, yes, I, I have done bad things, to make restitution where I can, and then to find peace with God in Christ, and then go forward but towards purity. Not, not perfectly, because we're still here in our, in our sinful world, but increasingly, we pursue what is right. We try to live a life of moral integrity in every area of our life. And you might be thinking, yeah, Matt, I, I get that, but I mean, you don't know the industry I work in. You, you don't know the job I have. I mean, the way we do business is cutting corners. That, that's what everyone does. So I, I get what you're saying, but if I didn't, I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a, a business. And the answer is, I, you're right. I, I don't know what your industry is like. I work at a church, and unless people are stealing staplers, there's not that level of difficulty. But, but the Bible, God knows what it's like. And there are many, many examples in the Bible of people under great pressure, men and women who are, being, who are faithful, who have moral integrity. Here's one example. Here's Daniel. This is Daniel in the lion's den. He served in politics all his life. He served at the pleasure of Babylonian kings, pagan kings. And he did it with excellence. So much so that he was put into positions of, of power. And uh, his, his colleagues were frustrated. They were jealous of him. And so they wanted to dig up dirt. And look what happens when they try. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Just think about that. He's been in politics for decades. He is, he's had the pressure of doing things well. He's had the pressure of people offering bribes to try to get access to the king. He's had so many opportunities to make a misstep and these guys are searching. There isn't one person who will say anything bad about Daniel. How is that possible? Well, it said right there in, in, in Daniel, um, the only thing that they could find would be in connection with the law of his God. He was known, known to be faithful to the law of God. In our text, in our text, we are exhorted to hold fast to the word of life. We're told as we devote ourselves to the Bible, as we hear from God and we are obedient to it, then we will find ourselves living a life of moral integrity. 
Why? Because, because God is completely integrous. He, he is pure and perfect, and what he tells us will lead us down the road of truth. So the question for us is, how are we doing with this? How are we doing with working out our salvation in, in these areas of our life? Are we doing it with fear and trembling at the thought of dishonoring the name of Jesus with the way that we do our, our life, our business dealings? Or are we cavalier about it? Are we thinking, look, every Christian's got something, right? God's grace covers this. I mean, it may be a little bit gray, but it's not a big deal. Is that our attitude? Or is it one of saying, Jesus, I, I want to honor you. I want to do things right. I want to, even if it's difficult, help me, give me the strength to be a man or a woman who people know that they have great moral integrity, that I can go to them, they're honest, they will always deal with me, deal with me fairly. That is a light that shines bright, one that doesn't grumble, and one that pursues what is blameless and true. Now, what's the effect of this? What happens in our life as we do this? Last couple verses, Philippians 2, 16b and 18 says, so that, so in light of all that, so that in the day of Christ, I, this is again Paul writing, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's, that's a fourfold call to be glad and to, be re- to rejoice. Paul is saying, we've got a lot to be joyful about. And the joy that he's talking about here is an enduring joy. There's a kind of joy that we have here on earth, but it doesn't last. And I'm just going to say, if you have a joy, if you're glad about something, but you can imagine a circumstance where that joy is taken away, then it's not real joy. If, if you have some gladness in your life, but you know that, that sickness or financial strain or something will remove it, then it's not a real joy. But Paul is talking about a joy that, that endures. Look, as an illustration, imagine, if you will, um, a group of criminals. <clears throat> These are the nice criminals. They're not looking to hurt anyone, but they want to steal a lot of money, right? We would probably make a movie about them because they have gadgets and smart things. And so they plan this heist, and it's fantastic. They execute it perfectly. No one gets hurt. They steal millions of dollars. And they're very, very smart, so they just sit on the money for a while. As, so- as soon as they get back to their cool hideout, um, they have the money, joy fills their heart. They're, they're so excited. They are rich. They know they're going to have to wait and be patient, but, but the whole time, they're thinking, man, I can buy anything I want. And slowly, they begin to enjoy their money. They buy some cars, not too flashy. They buy houses. They go on trips. For years, they enjoy all of that stolen money. They, they love it. But their joy is not complete. Why? Because, because at any moment, there could be a knock at their door. At any moment, there could be a piece of evidence that would connect them to the crime. At any moment, they could be put in handcuffs and brought into a courtroom where the truth about their life will be revealed. And once it is, all of their joy will be taken away. Be- because it's, it's happiness based on criminal activity. It's illicit happiness. In that moment, we would say, everyone would say, no, you deserve to go to jail. All that money needs to be paid back. Your joy is gone because you've broken the law. Do you know that there's a courtroom like that for each one of us? That's what we see in our text here. Paul talks about the day of Christ, the day where Christ will return to judge humanity. And in that moment, in that courtroom, that heavenly courtroom, 
the truth about our life will be revealed. And any of the joy that we have from, from enjoying the things that God has given us will be taken away because we all have turned our back on God. The world over, the happiness that is being enjoyed, we are taking the things that God has given us and we are using them wrongly. We're either using them for own pursuits, we're twisting things, we, we have money that God has given us, we have the gift of sex that God has given us, we have the gift of relationship, so many, the creation itself, all of it, we, ha- we have taken it and we've said, God, we don't need you. I'm gonna enjoy it on my own. We're criminals. And in that moment, the truth will be revealed. And so our joy will be taken unless, unless we know the name of Jesus. Because for us in that, in that courtroom, for those of us who know Christ, we will not talk about how the things that we did were not that bad or how we did all these other good things or how if you understand things correctly, you'll see that I didn't really mean to do that. No, there's only one thing that we can say and that is I deserve to be punished, yes, but by the grace of God, Jesus has taken my punishment. And so in that moment, our joy will not be diminished. In fact, our joy will increase. Our joy will increase exponentially into eternity because we won't just enjoy the the salvation, but also the fellowship with God. And so that is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, my joy, I I am glad to have my life poured out for you, to, to pour it into your faith because I want on the day of Christ to know that you've remained faithful, that you have that hope. And so for your own sacrificial offerings to faith, the way that you work out your own salvation, it is all worth it because in the end, we have a joy that endures. We have a joy that can never be taken away. And a question this morning just that needs to be asked is, is do you have that joy? Do you have that hope in your life? If you don't, the invitation of God remains open. God is saying, I, I want for every human being everyone who has turned their back against me to come into my presence, to know the salvation that comes through Christ. And so it's easy to do because there's no work for us to do here. At the point of salvation, we simply receive the work of Christ. And you can do that. You just respond in prayer to what God is doing. You say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I see that I've broken your laws. And I see that the right punishment for that is death forever. But I also see, thankfully, that Jesus, he took that punishment on himself, that he went to the cross to die in my place and then rose again, showing that he's conquered death. Jesus, I accept you as my savior. And, I, and Jesus, I want for you to not just be my savior, but also my Lord. I want you to make me into the person that you want me to be. And see, that's the connection. If you're here this morning and, and you, you want to say that, you want to pray that, we'd invite you to come down. We would love for today to be a day where you come to faith. And even if you said that in your own heart, praise God. But notice, for everyone who's, who has faith, that's the beginning of a life of change. And that's what we see in our text, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There, there is work for us to do. We are to be grateful and not grumble. We are to be blameless and pure. We are to shine as lights in the world, but we do all of that because of what Christ has done and because of what he continues to do in us our whole lives become a a therefore to the cross. Because of the cross, therefore we live like this. And we're made new. We have new lives, new hopes, new desires, and a new power to turn away from sin. So our text this morning is, is driving us in that direction. And my hope is that as we come from this, as we hear from God, that we would look for those areas of darkness in which to shine the light of Christ, to allow it to, to fully shine both in our own lives and in the world around us. 
so that we might gain greater peace, so that the people in our lives might also come to find the same peace, and so that we'd have great joy. So let's pray. Lord God, we are, I am thankful, Lord, for, uh, for your love. I'm thankful, Jesus, that there is a work that we could never do, and yet you did it for us on the cross. Uh, Jesus, we could never pay the penalty for our sins, uh, but you could and you did. Uh, Jesus, I pray that from that we would have such, a, such an abiding sense of love and comfort and peace, and Lord, that we would look at our lives as an opportunity to respond and to worship you fully, and to work on our salvation, to allow the light of Christ to uh, have its way in every area of our life. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to do that work, empowered by your strength? And Jesus, I pray that as we do that, there would be great opportunity uh, to to share this love with others, uh, to give testimony to your greatness. And I pray, Jesus, that uh, in this, you would be glorified. And Lord, we would be helped. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.